If you have your Bible, would you open it, please, to Luke chapter 15. We have spent the last five Sundays in uh, one of the most uh, preached and talked about and written about and uh, stories in all of Scripture, um, ancient words that indeed have changed lives and are still changing lives, words that are respected not only by the Christian community, but by the secular community. We, we said last week that uh, Charles Dickens, Ralph Waldo Emerson has said the story of the prodigal son, some of the greatest literature that's ever been written. And so we've spent five weeks in this passage and probably could spend some more. But I wanted to kind of uh, wrap up our series on the love of God uh, with uh, talking about the part of the Luke 15 that we haven't talked about yet and that's the story of the elder brother and you can't really leave the elder brother out because the elder brother the story of the elder brother is a climax of the story <laughs> climax of the story is not when the younger brother returns the climax of the story where Jesus was building in all of the three parables that he tells in Luke 15 is to this story here of the elder brother because he was telling this to the Pharisees and the scribes who were muttering as Jesus was teaching sinners that Jesus sits with these people and even eats with these people and to them he told this story and at the end when he speaks of the elder brothers he's speaking straight to the Pharisees it's the reason he told the story Luke chapter 15 is about lostness and it's about foundness and Luke chapter 15 verse 11 in the paragraph heading which which are not inspired the paragraph headings were by man and some of them are good and some of them probably should have been something different my paragraph heading here over verse 11 Luke 15 says the parable of the lost son and it's much more than the parable of the lost son it's the parable of the lost sons you know that right away because as the scripture starts it says Jesus continued there was a man who had two sons not just talking about one son it's a man who had two sons so it introduces this whole parable and the characters in this whole parable is the father and both of the sons and goes through and we've read this from from week to week and you can be able to see it on the screen there younger one said to the father give me my share of the estate so he divided the property between them and we said you know it's a made-up story now because no father would have ever done that a parable is a made-up story that Jesus made up that Jesus devised that Jesus concocted to make a point and when you see that you you see the parable for and the reason that he told it Jesus used it to make an illustration preachers tell illustrations to hopefully try to try to drive their point home and this is exactly what the master storyteller was doing here it doesn't lessen the authority of scripture at all to be able to say this is a made-up story it's simply Jesus in in his desire to make a point not long after he had the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living after he'd spent everything there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need so he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who'd sent him to the field to fields to feed pigs he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything verse 17 when he came to his senses we spent a whole 
message on that, those, that phrase. When he came to his census, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food and despair? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and ran to his son. And there's where we were last week. We said how absolutely undignified and how absolutely anti-culture that a patriarch in this society would have, ran, would have run. It was simply unheard of. Because when he would have run, he would have to, had to have lifted his robe. And to lift his robe, he would have exposed his ankles and his legs. When in that culture was absolutely undignified. So why did he ran? I always thought he ran just because he's excited to see his boy. No, he, he ran because his boy was coming home and his boy was going to receive the scorn and the wrath of the village and the community and they were going to humiliate him and they were going to ridicule him and the father enters into the shame of the son. The father is, is as shameful as the son has been in his actions. And so the father does something that a father never would do in that society and lifts his robe and in an undignified way he runs to enter into the shame of the son. So it's just not the son coming home to be shamed. The father says, I'm entering into your shame as well. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfected our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. The son can't be mocked anymore because the father is just as shameful as the son is by running. We don't understand that in our culture. But this was story was not told to 2012 people. And so it's our job to be able to decipher the culture, to be able to get what Jesus really means. And here comes the father running. And we've said in Aramaic texts all the way up into the 1880s, they would not translate this word run because it was so undignified. They would translate it hurried. Because everyone knows that the Father represents God and how God running is totally, they couldn't fathom it. So even though the word was run, they wouldn't translate it run because it was so undignified in that culture. And God ran. To, to, to enter into the shame. So the boy wouldn't be the only one that is shameful. So the boy wouldn't be receive all the scorn and the shame from the village community that would have no doubt said, uh, told you so. Ah, here he comes. God ran. And he still runs. He still runs. He still enters into our shame. Story continues. He ran to his son, threw his arms around his sons and kissed him. And the, and the original doesn't say kissed him. The, the original says kissed him and 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 kissed him. That's what word means. Word means kissed him repeatedly. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on his feet. Best robe is, a, is, a, is, is are two words that literally means robe of first rank. It would have been the father's robe. It would have been the father's robe. Robe of first rank. 
put it on his feet, put a ring on his finger. And we've talked that that ring signifies sonship, signifies it's, it's, like, it's like a visa card in our day and time. This is how you, this is how you pay for things. You, you stamp the family name with that signet ring. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Verse 25. Meanwhile, here's the climax of the story. Here's what he was, 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 was getting at from the very start. He had to tell all those three parables, shepherd, coin, and lost son, to get to where he wants to be. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. You see, the celebration wasn't for the son. It was for the father. The father is back in right relationship with the son because the text says he has killed the fatted calf because he has returned. No, because the father has him back. The father has him back. No one, would, no one in the village would ever come to celebration that the, this, this child, this prodigal has returned. But they would come out of respect for the father who is now again in right relationship with his son. The party was for the father. The party was for the father. Gives a whole understanding to salvation, doesn't it? Coming home. What a metaphor of salvation. Salvation is coming home. Returning to where you should be in the first place. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. It's rather disrespectful, don't you think? Look. In that day, about a hundred more times than today, fathers were looked upon with respect and, and were called father. But this older brother says, look. It's not the respectful first century way to address your father. Shows you a little bit about the condition of his heart. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and, dis and never disobeyed your orders. What a disillusioned young man. <laughs> Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property and pro with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, and the word is technon, it's, it's ten, more tender than son. It's, it's, it's child. And the, the New Living Translation translated, my dear son, that gets, that's better. It gets closer to what technon is. It's not just my son. It's my dear, dear child. The father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours that was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. Um, this, this, this story shows two types of lostness. It shows younger brother lostness and it shows elder brother lostness. It shows the type of lostness that we all understand and, and, and we, we, we attribute to lostness. It's a, it's a distant country lostness. It's a far country lostness. It's a squandering all your wealth with, with wild women and gambling and all the kind of lostness that's very out in the open and the very kind of lostness that everybody talks about. But 
there's two types of lostness. There's that evil lostness. There's that bad people lostness. But Jesus also says there's a good people lostness too. And we all totally understand the bad people lostness, but good people lostness. Can you be too good to be saved? Can you be too good to be saved? Younger, younger boy had, had, had reached the absolute bottom. He was feeding pigs and he didn't have anything to eat and it was a famine and he had, and needed. He, just, he was in need and just, he had just reached the absolute bottom. And, and man, everybody knows that guy needs a Savior. But what about the good people? They pay their bills on time and Good people in the community, respected in the community. Raise good kids. Can you be too good to be saved? Jesus says so. Jesus says so. Because people that are so good that they don't see their own lostness are too good to be saved. People that are so good that they can't fathom their own lostness are too good to be saved. It's not hard to get people saved. It's hard to get them lost. It's not hard to get people saved. It's hard to get them to come to grips where they're poor in spirit. And they understand their neediness. And they come to grips with their personal need for a Savior. And people can talk about all oh, the condition of the world and the world's going to hell in the handbasket and all oh, the world, all oh, the world, all oh, the world. But it's much harder to be poor in spirit and understand my neediness because this world teaches us to be rich in spirit. To feel good about ourselves. Just be who you are. You just need a little more education. You just need to really find yourself. Elder brothers of the world are really good people. But I'm afraid in their goodness they're excluded from the kingdom. Because they've never come to grips with their lostness. Now it's easy to tell, it's easy to tell a younger brother, because they're just, I mean, it's easy to tell them. They come back and they're smelling like pigs and their clothes are tattered and they're broke. And but how how do you know if somebody's an elder? Because you know where elders are? Right today, they're in church. All kinds of churches with all kinds of names. They're in them. They're good. Have they ever come to grips that they need a Savior every bit as much as that stinking younger son? 
needs a Savior. You've got, you got a couple of characteristics of, of elder brothers in here. The Bible says in verse 28, after the elder brother was told there's a party going on, the Bible says the elder brother become angry. You know, elder brothers are, there's, there's an undercurrent of anger in their spirits. Um, there's an undercurrent of resentment. How can this, how can this sinner be received and saved after all he's done? And I've, I've been a good person all my life. I've never gone out to the far country. There's an undercurrent of, uh, Resentment, anger, maybe anger toward God because anger, older brothers are kind of works related and maybe why aren't things going well for me? I've, 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 I've always obeyed your orders. I've always been out working in the fields for you. Why are things, I understand why things are going bad for the younger, but why are things going bad for me? Why is God doing this to me? And, and their, their understanding of grace is, is well, really non, no understanding of grace. They, they deal with God on a tit-for-tat type of basis. God does this for me, I do that for him. There's, a, there's, a, there's an undercurrent of anger. Uh, young, older brothers don't dance and they don't laugh. We had a, we had a seminar I don't know, a couple of months ago, and we have some doctrinal issues going on in the church of Nazarene, like anyone else does, and some groups of people that want to take us in a position to a place that we've never ever gone before. History, uh, uh, in, in history, we've never gone that way. They think they're taking us back to where we've been all along, but they're wrong. And and so we were having this seminar, and and there were some of the uh, those people that feel like we need to go back to where we were and that we've, we've lost our way and that we're going to hell in the handbasket. And I looked around, and I know who those people are because I know how I, I've, I've dealt with those people. I looked around, and, and um, they don't smile very much. Again, it's hard for them to laugh. One of them told Dr. Van Ness, our district superintendent, that I'll I wash my hands of your blood. not happy they can't come into the place the worship space and they can't celebrate what God has done for them well I don't deserve to be in here but God has accepted me anyway praise God from whom all blessings flow they come in here they have nothing to sing about they have nothing to sing about. The elder brothers. There's a spirit of resentment, a spirit of anger in their life. The, the text says, you know, the Bible says from the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, and here's the overflow of the heart. Look, all, the years I've, all these years I've been slaving. Well, Mark, you better look up in the Greek and see what that word means. You know what it means? Slaving! What type of relationship did this son have with the father? All these years I've been slaving. All 
these years I've been doing my duty. All these years I've been doing my obligation. All these years I've been a good boy. And I've been slaving for you. Tells you a lot about his heart. Tells you where he is. Tells you about his relationship with his dad. Duty. Obligation. If I do this, God will do this. No grace. It's interesting that the younger son said, I I am no longer worthy to be called a son, so make me one of your hired men, one of your slaves. And the older son said, "Uh, I am a son, but I have been slaving for you. The irony of that. Make me one of your slaves. And he says, I've already been slaving for you. Duty. Maybe if I do this, God will do this. Maybe if I do this, God will kill the fatted calf. Maybe if I do this, God will give me this. Maybe if I do this, God will bring my wife back. Maybe if I do this, I will... Maybe if I do this, I will... You know, the only reason you serve God is to get God. It's the only reason you serve him. Whether he restores your job, whether he gives you uh, uh, your, your, want, your desires or your wants, whether he gives you a house, whether he gives you a raise, whether he gives you whatever it is, you don't, do, you don't serve God because of what he does for you in monetary things or financial things. You serve God because you get God. You get God. And if you serve God for any other reason, you've got some elder brother-ish about you. See, it's tit for tat. What will you do for me? My life will be better because of what you can do for me, God. You're a Christian because you get God. And getting God is better than getting all that other stuff. You get God. One of the preachers that I read from and listen to sometimes is Tim Keller. He pastors in New York. and He says that when he was in college, he took music appreciation because it was an easy A. And everybody took music appreciation because you could help your GPA out. So he had to listen to Mozart and Bach and Hayden had to learn to distinguish between those. And he, he, he did that because out of duty. He did that because it would help his GPA, which would uh, make his resume look better, which would get him a better job, which would earn him more money. He took that class for what he could get out of that class. But now after years of maturing, he says he pays money to go listen to Mozart. Mozart is no longer a duty. Tim Keller says it's a beauty. And that's the way it is with a true relationship with God. Not that I am in a relationship with God because of what he's going to get for me. Well, that, that, that girl in that youth group will marry me maybe. If, uh, well, her family won't um, let me marry her unless I'm a Christian. I better walk the aisle this week and get baptized.
don't serve out of duty. You don't serve for what you get. Even if he gives you nothing, you've got the best prize at all, and you've got God. Me or no one else in this church has the right or the discernment to call anyone an elder brother. Elder brother is between you and God. In fact, if I call you an elder brother, I may be an elder brother myself. So how is one possibly, do they awake to the elder brother-ishness? You let me make up a word there. You come to grips with how wide and how long and how deep is the love of God. And this father goes out to this obstinate older brother in the same way they went out to the younger brother. You have a boy here who was home, but he wasn't home. You had a boy who in the far country that was a lot closer to home because of his heart condition than this elder brother who was actually home himself, but was far away from God in his heart. Friends, as we finish the prodigal story here, I, I hope there's not a single person in here that is missing the love of God in their life. If you do, if you're just slaving, if you're just serving, You've missed the whole point of this thing. And you're lost. And you're going to hell. There's two kinds of lostness. Younger brother lostness. And older brother lostness. And I hope there's not a single person in this place that is too good to be saved. too good to be saved. For if you are, you're deceived. And the enemy's having a heyday with you. This will be a really tough altar call. so tough that I'm not going to give one. Because walking to an altar to admit 30 to 40 years of elder brotherism is a pretty powerful thing. You know. And God knows. He's loving. For who he is. Not for what he may do for you just because of who he is. Are you slaving for him? Or are you just loving him? Kim Smith was one of my mentors in ministry, and Kim says, was talking about someone in church that actually he had a little difficulty with and had some conflict with. And, and Kim told me, was telling me about him and telling me about the conflict, and Kim said, um, now I know he loves God, and that was the first time in my young Christian life that I'd heard 
a salvation relationship referred to as just like that. Now, I know he loves God. But that's really what it is. Just like St. Augustine says, you love God, and then you do as you please. Because if you love God, you won't do anything to displease him. Let's pray together. Father, the, the world... The world thinks Christianity is elder brotherism. The elder brothers of this church and of the church universal keep people from seeing your son Jesus. And I pray right now for any, anyone who's an elder brother they're good. They've been here a long time. But that lostness stuff was for other people. I pray that right now every one of us will come to grips with our lostness. And there's not a single person in here that's too good to be saved. I pray for some of us who while maybe we're not elder brothers we have some elder brother characteristics and I would put myself in that group. And we tend to look down and we tend to be judgmental and we are not merciful enough. For people that are in a far, far country making horrible, horrible decisions. I pray that if there are elder brother characteristics in any of us that you would just show them to us and we would repent of them and we could ask you for your heart not the heart of the elder brother Father may we be amazed May we be able to say, and can it be that somehow your love has found us out because I am one undeserving person. And may we walk out with that type of poor in spirit attitude and leave any elder brother-isms right here. Father, May we not miss your love because we're slaving for you or because we're so good. Now in this moment of silence, uh, you may need to talk to the Father concerning your response to this message or maybe something else God has prompted you. Would you talk to him now, please?
you would stay in that prayerful attitude. You notice the story just ends abruptly. There's no verse 33. The end of that story is kind of in our own hands. How will the elder brother respond? Will he repent? Or will he go on with his elder brother-ishness about him? And so we are verse 33. How will we respond? Lord God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for ancient words ever true, changing me. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for this story that comes home to 2012, even though it's 2,000 years old. Thank you, Father, for these ancient words that many have sacrificed their blood for to preserve these words for us so they can be continue to be preached and the story can be told for generations to come. Take these ancient words, deposit them deep in our souls. May they be life-changing, and may the truth set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.